Welcome to another episode of Ganbei. I'm your host, Art Dicker, and today we have the real true pleasure to be joined by Brian Fleming. He's a member at Miller & Chevalier, which is a leading Washington, D.C. law firm. So Brian's practice area includes, among other things, export control, CFIUS investigations, and other compliance and enforcement issues related to international trade. Welcome, Brian. Thanks, Art. Very uh, happy to be here today. Yeah, we are thrilled to have you, and it's a timely, uh, very timely to have you. So um, we've been talking about doing a podcast like this, and so I grabbed the chance to do it at this time, and we'll get into why it's so timely in a second. Um, on your background, I wanted to give you a chance to um, talk a little bit about your experience before Miller, Miller and Chevalier. So you were at the Department of Justice for a few years, uh, working on expert control and CFIUS reviews there. Can you can you describe a little bit about what that experience was? Yeah, absolutely. So my current practice focused on international trade and national security issues, as Art mentioned, export controls, economic sanctions, CFIUS primarily, uh, all grew out of my experience in government. Uh, as, as Art mentioned, I was with the Justice Department in the National Security Division for several years. Uh, and there I was focused on those issues uh, first as a sort of line attorney uh, investigating and prosecuting those uh, export control and sanctions issues, in particular cybersecurity issues, economic espionage and theft of trade security issues. Uh, and in many of those cases, as, as um, the audience may imagine, given the US enforcement focus were, uh, had something to do with China. Uh, so very familiar with um, how these issues tend to play out in, in China and with the various players in China. And then during my latter, uh, time at the Justice Department was working as an advisor and counsel to the head of the National Security Division. Uh, and that's where I was more involved uh, with CFIUS uh, and helping to manage the CFIUS process at the Justice Department and was involved in many, many uh, matters and reviews and investigations that took place over my last couple of years, uh, again, many of which related to China. Uh, and this is in sort of tail end of the prior administration, the early part of the Trump administration. So I've I've sort of seen uh, the whole gamut of issues play out over the last couple of years. Cool, very cool. And anyone anyone who knows me uh, knows that CFIUS is an issue that I like to write about and talk about, and maybe occasionally give Brian a call about. Um, and and I, boy, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall in some of those meetings at the uh, DOJ and other places, Department of Treasury. But alas, um, I can only listen to your podcast instead, which <laughs> I want to give a plug for the Embargoed Podcast, which you co-host. Um, tell us a little bit about the podcast. Yeah, thanks. As a fellow, it's always good to be uh, sort of sharing the love with a fellow podcaster. Uh, so my partner, Tim O'Toole, and I at Miller & Chevalier, we, we co-host a, a bi-weekly podcast called Embargoed, as Art, Art said. And um, the our tagline is Intelligent Talk about uh, sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal, normal human beings alike. Uh, and so that is really our goal is to have a intelligent conversation uh, about usually the most sort of pressing uh, topics of the day. And there has been just such a flurry of activity in this space over the last um, uh, six months plus months since we started the podcast that there's no shortage of things to talk about. And as you may imagine, a good number of the of our episodes and a good number of our recording time is spent talking about issues focused on China um of late um hong kong and some of the other actions that are going that the u.s has been focused on uh i think this in our next episode we are likely going to be covering some of the same topics that 
Art and I are going to be discussing today, but from a slightly different angle. So um, encourage everybody to, to check it out and uh, you can find it anywhere you get podcasts. So thank you, Art, for, for the plug. Highly recommend. Um, so without further ado, I'm sure our fellow trade nerds are, are chomping at the bit um, for us to get into the topic of the day. And, and you have, as you said, it's, it has been a flurry of activity just in the last week. Um, and so, so um, you know, one of the things that we're going to jump right into is these executive orders, which came out uh, on TikTok and, and then WeChat, basically back to back. And though, in a nutshell, those orders um, prohibit certain transactions, transactions to be later defined uh, related to WeChat and TikTok. So my first question is sort of, can you walk us through the legal basis for behind these executive orders? Sure. So, uh, you know, and just to give, even to take a, a quick step back b before that, I mean, I think as anybody who follows this knows, there's been a lot of noise and a lot of chatter coming from the White House and coming from the U.S. policymaking community about um, perceived threats, uh, national security threats relating to um, data privacy and telecommunications. And that has been a constant sort of theme and through line for the past few years. And so in some ways, this is a bit of a crescendo that we saw last week with these two executive orders focused on uh, ByteDance and TikTok and Tencent and WeChat. Uh, the, the underlying authorities for these uh, executive orders are, is what's known as the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, IEPA uh, is the acronym. Uh, and for anybody who follows or is, or is generally aware of, uh, so that's a that's a law that's been in place for a little over 40 years. It was passed in the late 70s. And uh, for anybody who follows U.S. economic sanctions in particular, um, IEPA is sort of the bedrock upon which uh, just about all U.S. sanctions programs are built. Uh, not, not every single one. There are some that predate IEPA, but... Uh, it is truly sort of the foundational piece that um, all presidents since that time have have sort of based their executive strong executive actions um, that are taken for national security and foreign policy reasons in this space. And so, um, just for a little context, there was there was a lot of discussion um, sort of mid 2019 that uh, President Trump was a, was imminently about to take some action um, with respect to Huawei that was going to be based on IEPA, that was going to be broad and sweeping and was going to potentially try to ban Huawei in the United States, as some are reading the current executive orders that were just issued um, with respect to TikTok and WeChat. So it is, I think, a shorthand for a broad tool uh, that can be deployed by the president, by the executive to um, counteract and address what are perceived to be and declared to be um, national emergencies. Uh, and so that is that is what underpins both of these executive orders. Um, you know, I, I'm sure we're going to talk about this a bit uh, now in the next few minutes, but, uh, you know, there have been a lot of people that are critical of IEPA as, a, as an authority to, to enact such rules and laws because it is it is so broad and it is, you know, there are certain limitations on it, but at the end of the day, um, there's, there is not, as a practical matter, a lot of history, whether through the court system or other checks of kind of successfully limiting 
presidential authority um, that's deployed via IEPA. And so uh, as those who, again, follow what's been going on in the U.S. closely for the past few years, I think that this administration has kind of pushed that to the limit in some respects by really being aggressive in how expansively it is uh, use, using this authority. And, and I think this, these two executive orders last week are, are seen by many as, as another example of that and perhaps even a, a step beyond anything that we've really seen before. Actually, kind of for the benefit of our audience, might even take a second to read this, the, the, the actual text from the, uh, the executive order. I'll choose the one on WeChat because I think that's the one people are talking about the most because we're going to get back to some of these terms in a second. So real quick, any transaction that is related to WeChat by any person or with respect to any property subject to the jurisdiction of the United States with Tencent Holdings Limited, aka Tangshen Kongu Yoshan Gongsi, Shenzhen China, or any subsidiary of that entity as identified by the Secretary of Commerce, Secretary, under Section 1C of this order. And then 1C goes on to just say that the Department of Commerce has 45 days to identify the transactions basically that are subject to this rule. Uh, and then to, to, to uh, wind it up, section 2A then goes on and says any transaction by also purports any transaction by United States person or within the United States that evades or avoids, has the purpose of evading or avoiding, causes a violation of or attempts to violate the prohibition set forth in this order is prohibited. So basically, uh, there's a lot of confusion, I think, right now about what is a transaction, um, why is this order limited to WeChat, and what, because we're going to get into a second, what WeChat is for those who don't know it so well here in China, and then what is a person. And so um, first, let's start with the 45 days, though. So the orders call for the Department of Commerce to identify all prohibited transactions within 45 days. How do you see that process uh, working in the next 45 days? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I think I've already gotten a number of questions on this um, front where I think people are a little surprised or maybe even assume that um, OFAC and the Treasury Department would be the agency that would be primarily responsible for implementing this, but that's not the case. It's the Commerce Department. Um, I think I think that that is largely because housed within the Commerce Department is an agency, a, a sub-agency, um, which is the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, NTIA, which is sort of the primary advisor policymaker with respect to telecommunications policy uh, to the president. And so they play a role in, in other interagency and, and executive branch settings where they are kind of the primary advisor on some of these issues. And I think uh, I think that is why this is ultimately housed, uh, this authority is probably housed within the Commerce Department, though I think that will become clearer in the next 45 days. Um, the so, so sort of putting the subject matter experts, if you will, uh, responsible for making the rules. Um, but, you know, make no mistake, I think the rule process, the rules uh, development process, if you will, uh, is very top-down driven. It is very much this, I think, executive order, these executive orders, um, came as something as a, as a surprise to a lot of people uh, last week, not, um, especially, I think, uh, uh, ByteDance and uh, Tencent. And, uh, you know, so how that process is actually going to play out, what the scope is going to be there in terms of, as you've hit the nail on the head, sort of what is a, what is a transaction that is identified and covered under this executive order or these executive orders. Um, one can imagine 
um, a pretty narrow definition. One can imagine an incredibly broad definition. One can also imagine certain maybe key audiences or key um, persons that are going to be targeted to sort of have the disruptive effect that the U.S. government is intending these orders to have. And so I think a lot of a lot of the ultimate impact here obviously is not going to be fully known or fully appreciated until those rules are uh, set out. I should also add a quick caveat, which is um, it is not it is not all that um, uh, irregular for agencies who are tasked with these type deadlines to not meet them. So uh, <laughs> we are all assuming it is going to be 45 days by 45 days. And I and I looked at it quickly. Um, day 45 would actually fall on a weekend. So it would be September 21st would be day 45 because it, it, uh, August 6th was the issuance date. Mm. Uh, so September 21 is a date to circle on your calendars. Uh, I, I would expect there will be rules by then, but it, that date could quietly come and go. And we'll see a number of news articles noting that day, day 45 is coming on and we're still waiting on some rules and regulations. So we'll have to see on that, on that uh, issue. Got it. Yeah, no, I'm sure. And it's, it's like, I wouldn't want to be in the DOC right now having to try and figure all this out either. I can't imagine it's an easy, easy task in front of them. Because precisely how do you define a transaction, right? That, that it could be very narrow, could be broad. I think one of the questions that I'm getting a lot here in China, especially from companies, uh, American companies, of course, that have so much business here. Um, I think people don't necessarily appreciate the pervasiveness of WeChat in in business here, and especially in e-commerce. So, for the benefit of the audience that is not doesn't have a lot of experience here in China, I know Brian, you've come here before. You've seen um, how no one carries cash anymore, right? So, or credit cards. People buy everything with their phone, pay either with Alipay from Alibaba uh, or our Ant Financial or you pay with uh, 10 cents uh, WeChat pay. And so these are predominant payment methods, but it's actually quite more than that. Um, 10 cents WeChat is, is often called a super app. It's basically, um, you could do, live pretty much your whole life and do everything on your phone with this one app. And, and that includes for businesses, um, there's this thing embedded apps within WeChat, which are called mini apps, which are basically, let me give you a, a concrete example. So every morning I come to the office, I get a coffee from Tim Hortons. Tim Hortons is all the rage now here that's out here in China. And um, go figure. And um, so I don't wait in line at Tim Hortons. I'm on the subway. I punch in my order on my phone, but I don't use Tim Hortons app to do that. I use WeChat and I use Tim Hortons app within WeChat. So the first question we all got out here was if they really, if the government, U.S. government bans the use of WeChat by, by any person, and that includes U.S. companies, and that is presumably could include U.S. companies' subsidiaries here in China, there's going to be a massive, massive impact to these companies here, which some gets a huge percentage of their, their revenue, global revenue from China. So do, do you think, I'm going to jump ahead to one of my questions, do you think that that is going to play a factor in how the determination of some of these definitional things play out, both on what is a transaction, um, what company, what whether subsidiaries are affected, and then what kind of is there going to be some kind of lobbying effort by by these companies that have so much at stake? 
Yeah, so th there's a couple of, so I think you hit on a couple of critical issues there. So let me just try to hit them kind of one one at a time. So I think the first is, who's, who are these prohibitions going to apply to? And, you know, by the language of the executive order that you read earlier, it's, it's you know, any transaction by a person subject to U.S. jurisdiction, right? That is the sort of focal point. And then later on in section two, you read sort of U.S. A U.S. person. So those those two those two things may sound equivalent, but actually in in sort of sanctions uh, terms or in uh, in trade world terms, they're they're not necessarily. So U.S. persons is actually defined within the executive order, and it's U.S. citizens, green card holders, um, companies that are organized under the laws of the U.S. or any U.S. jurisdiction, foreign branches of those entities, and anybody who's physically present in the U.S. Um, Person, a person subject to U.S. jurisdiction is typically bit broader than that, uh, and and it's not defined in the executive order, but in other contexts, especially in the sanctions contexts, um, that we see uh, the rules that apply to Iran and Cuba, for example, under U.S. sanctions law, person subject to U.S. jurisdiction does include subsidiaries uh, of U.S. companies, wholly owned subsidiaries that may be operating outside of the U.S., um, that wouldn't constitute a foreign branch. So I think that's a little bit of a question mark, how that's going to be defined and what that what that scope is going to be, just in terms of who it's going to apply to. That's number one. Right. Number two is, um, to your point, uh, the, the what appears to be the aim here, especially with the WeChat uh, Tencent executive order, is, is prohibiting or barring use of WeChat, at least for U.S. persons and in the United States. But as you point out, this is going to have some potentially pretty significant uh, collateral consequences if you sort of spin that out um, beyond U.S. borders. Uh, and, um, and that, I think, then gets into the, the sort of fundamental question, which is, you know, again, how is a transaction going to be identified? How is it going to be defined? Who are, the, who are they going to target? I, I can assure you no matter how aggressively this, this administration wants to go after China and big Chinese companies that it believes are um, you know, engaged in, in pernicious activity with respect to US national security interests, there is no way that they are going to be trying to enforce this thing on a person by person basis with respect to every WeChat user everywhere around the world. That's just obviously, um, that's just not feasible. That's just not gonna be the case. So what are they gonna do? Well. Um, I think you raised the, in just talking through the mechanics of how the app works, um, for those who aren't familiar, uh, I do think that, uh, you know, the big providers of, of apps, certainly the U.S. based providers, so Apple, uh, Google, Amazon, any place where, um, U.S. persons or people that are in the U.S. are getting their apps for their smartphones, those entities are likely going to be subject to this to this prohibition. I I I I have seen this reported that that is those with inside knowledge believe that that is sort of one of the main thrusts of this, and so I, it would make sense that that would be what what the targeting would be because that will you know then if you couldn't provide any you know further updates or support to users if those stores had to bring those apps down in the U.S. then that would that would potentially largely neutralize, um, you know, uh, the the audience there for for WeChat and in, in, again in the U.S. at least. Mm -hmm. um, but I think to your point, 
uh, you know, just from my own experience, I don't, I don't have WeChat on my phone in the United States, but when I, whenever I travel to China, as soon as I land in Beijing or wherever I'm going, I download it <laughs> because yeah. I know that there's, a, it's very difficult to get in touch with anybody if I don't have WeChat when I'm in country in China. And so um, that is something presumably that I would not be able to do uh, going forward. And so um, to your point about just conducting day-to-day transactions in business, how is how disruptive could that potentially be? It could be massively disruptive. Now, I would I would add one last thought and caveat, which is, um, so the the way the executive order is written is it is a it is a transaction with Tencent related to WeChat. Mm-hmm. So I think that formulation is purposeful and and may I mean it it can come across quite broadly. But I think there's also probably some question marks and some gray area there as to what would really constitute a transaction by a U.S. person or by a person subject to U.S. jurisdiction with Tencent related to WeChat. Or okay. so I think that's that's a potential area for some narrowing as well as as the as the rules and regulations come in the future. But but again, right now this is all a lot of conjecture because um, until we see until we see some actual rules and until we see the actual parameters of what a transaction subject to these rules will be, um, you know, it's, it's a bit of educated guesswork. But again, at the end of the day, we know that the main concern here, and for anybody who has not had a chance to read the executive order that um, Art read from earlier, I would encourage you to do so um, and read the preamble to the executive order of, of both of these orders where mm-hmm. it lays out sort of the policy justifications for this and why the U.S. deems this to be uh, an urgent matter that needs to be dealt with quite harshly. So, uh, and it's it's getting at, um, again, sort of data privacy, theft of privacy, sort of espionage related and blackmail concerns. Yep. These are sort of, these are sort of central uh, and you can you can believe or not believe that I'm not taking I'm not really taking a position on that. But I, what I'm saying I am telling you from my time and from everything I've seen recently, those are well held and genuinely held beliefs within the U.S. government. That those are those are legitimate um, concerns and problems that have to be addressed in some form or fashion, and that is not going to change. And so um, th- those are things that I think are going to have to be reckoned with, uh, and they're not going to be they're not going to be uh, going away anytime soon. I also did notice related to that, there was some language which I didn't uh, read for the audience, but which seems to suggest that one could almost apply for, for a license or for some sort of um, exemption out of this, similar to what we've seen with, um, with some of the export control um, rules coming out about um, ZT and Huawei and the like, right? Do you see that as a possibility? Yeah. So just to, to, address the first point you raised i think the the formulation in the in the tencent order in particular which is related to wechat with tencent that's yeah. obviously very purposeful there's there was it's clear that they didn't want to write this in a way to um bar all transactions with tencent or its yeah. or its subsidiaries now by contrast the other executive order just says transactions with ByteDance. it doesn't even mention tiktok i think and i think we're going to get to that in a minute i think that's because the government is expecting there's going to be a sale of TikTok. And so right. ByteDance very soon may not be the owner of TikTok any longer. Mm-hmm. And so that's probably why it was written more broadly. I, that's my guess. Uh, and, but so uh, I think that limitation on the, on the second one, on the one related to Tencent and WeChat is, is important because I think it is meant to be um, 
you know, within the grand scheme of things, at least somewhat narrow. Um, on your second point about licensing, uh, yes, it certainly seems like what they are, um, what they're anticipating here is setting up something akin to, again, the way that um, the Commerce Department would license uh, exports to China, uh, or would license other certain other activity, or the way that OFAC uh, licenses potentially uh, um, certain conduct that would run afoul of the of U.S. sanctions, and so that this is will be. It's, it's something new, it's something different. It doesn't really fit within any of the existing kind of rubrics, but it would, it would essentially be um, some kind of administrative apparatus that would exist that would allow US persons or persons subject to US jurisdiction to seek permission, i.e. a license from the Commerce Department, presumably, to be able to engage in conduct that would otherwise be prohibited. So I do think that that is, intended or is expected to be built into whatever the rules and regulations are that that will be forthcoming and do you think that's that's going to be the, the the preferred way that that the commerce department wants to address this with licenses for example or do you but do you see to my earlier question u.s businesses lobbying during these 45 days and other and 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 if it's extended maybe it's extended to not even get to that license process but to work on work and try and limit the definition of, of how this may apply yeah, I'm I'm certain that there are, is going to be a push by the the most affected parties to try to uh, influence what the ultimate substance of these rules is going to be, whether that's through discussions with the White House or through discussions with uh, the senior levels of the Commerce Department. Um, how, um, I, again, to use another example uh, that the audience will likely be very familiar with. Um, with respect to Huawei, there was some rules that just came down within the past couple of months that uh, affected the way that Huawei is able to manufacture uh, semiconductors outside the US. And it basically expanded the scope of the US technologies uh, and US equipment that are now subject to US export control restrictions, uh, thereby making it um, illegal without a license to do uh, fabrication and other types of work on behalf of Huawei uh, for certain foundries and other um, partners that they may have. That rule was, um, and how narrowly or broadly that rule was gonna be uh, implemented was discussed, debated among many different uh, constituencies in the US for a long time. And I think that ultimately they, what happened was they, they ended up, we ended up with a narrow rule in part because uh, affected parties in the US uh, in, in the semiconductor industry and otherwise um, really made their case that this would be significantly damaging if there was too broad a rule that was implemented. So I do think that your instinct that we'll see the same thing here is likely correct. Um, again, it is uh, given the aims here, which are, uh, you know, the stated aim here is to protect, uh, you know, sensitive data that can be used and deployed or exploited um, to ill effect by the Chinese government against U.S. citizens in the U.S. Uh, or abroad is um, would it would stand to reason that there could be some fencing off of of sort of the application of of the rules of the scope of transactions uh, to again not deter 
uh, again, you're a U.S. person, so it's 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 hard, but not deter most people in 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 Shanghai from being able to order their morning coffee from Tim Hortons on you know as they're taking the the metro to the office. So um, you would think that that is going to be the case, and that you know common sense and reason will prevail. I also will say that um, the Commerce Department and the government will do themselves something of a I mean, on the one hand, there's a school of thought that says, well, as broad and as aggressive as you want to go is is great because then that will have the deterrent effect that you want and will keep people away and it will protect U.S. interests. But at the same time, if they are going to be forced to issue guidance and reckon with questions and requests coming from especially China, but from all corners of the world about whether or not this this is covered or that is covered or, or uh, you know, a license is needed. It's just an incredible administrative burden mm-hmm. on the Commerce Department to deal with that. Um, now, that hasn't stopped this administration from doing that in other contexts, and so I wouldn't, I wouldn't sort of say that's decisive. But at the end of the day, there is a, there is typically a pretty strong incentive to put in place as, uh, you know, impactful a rule as as you can. But then at the same time. Uh, try to circumscribe it in a sensible way so that you're not going to overburden the agency that is mm. charged with enforcing it. Right. At the end of the day, it's people that have to implement this. It's not. It's not Correct. the Commerce Department. It's it's the team there, and that's yes. the limitations there. As you as you probably know, having spent time inside the government, there's, there's, there's certain yes. bandwidth limitations. I'm sure. It, actually, so so speaking of then U.S. business stakeholders, we we also probably should try, mention that. You know, there's Tencent and ByteDance and all this as well. And and can you say anything for the audience benefit about sort of some, maybe the standing that they might have in the U.S. to appeal uh, a decision like this? Yeah, I mean, I, I saw a I saw a, a, a statement in a in an article a couple of days ago from a ByteDance representative that um, you know says this is you know this is unexpected and unprecedented and and it was done without due process. And I think that sort of has the whiff of, um, you know, a, a potentially a future lawsuit here to, to, to try to challenge something like this. Um, so just to go back to what I said at the beginning, um, you know, IEPA is a very broad authority. It is not often the case that it is successfully challenged, especially when national security is being invoked and, ha- and there's any sort of plausible basis for national security to be the basis for certain action. That being said, uh, this is certainly an instance when I could see it rising to the level where the affected parties, in particular ByteDance and Tencent, could take legal action to try to um, challenge the rule, uh, whether it be uh, because they were not afforded adequate due process to make their case why um, the sort of uh, policy bases here are unfounded, perhaps, or uh, you know they didn't have a chance to uh, respond or to to pursue or offer any alternatives or something along those lines. There's there's also um, there's often the case uh, challenges that um, say that this is an unconstitutional taking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, of their property interests and that they have now, you know, Matt, you know, we've seen what this, what the sort of, um, equity markets have done in response to this announcement in these, in these companies. And, and that is going to, I'm sure continue to be a, a challenge for them, at least in the short term. So any, any of those types of challenges I would, I would presume are, are pretty likely now the, the, 
complicating factor can be that, um, you know, uh, for non-U.S. companies, now they both have some presence in the U.S., so I don't think this would be as big of a problem. But if you're talking about somebody who has is sort of untethered to the U.S., then you know there there may be standing issues, or um, yeah. you know they don't have uh, this; they're not going to be afforded the same protections as people who are either uh, you know U.S. persons or or at least in the U.S. Uh, here, I don't know that that would be as big of a a, a problem. Um, so, so yeah, I think we're going to see that. And we've seen again, lawsuits that have been filed by Huawei and others in recent years that are challenging various, um, harsh measures that are being Im implemented by the U S I think there's also a good chance that we're going to see, um, certainly public interest groups bringing suits, perhaps on behalf of users of these, mm -hmm. of these apps, um, whether it be on first amendment grounds or on some other grounds, um, that are trying to challenge these actions on their behalf. I would, I would be more skeptical of, of those kind of secondary suits, if you will. I think the, I think the, you know, directly affected business owners here are probably the best chance to bring some type of successful challenge. But again, um, it gets very, it gets very tricky, and there is generally a lot of leeway and a lot of deference that the executive branch is afforded when it's implementing rules like this. Yeah, it's national security. And we know that the executive branch has a lot of authority on, on national security, a lot of discretion. Um, that is a nice segue into our, the second half of our, our show here. And, and we wanted to also uh, save some time to talk about the sale of TikTok, our potential sale of TikTok. It's not a done deal yet. Um, or it may never be a, deal, a done deal, but so let me give quickly the, for those who, who don't know all the background, a quick synopsis of the background. So, uh, so as early as last year, Senator Marco Rubio um, called for Sisyphus, um, is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, has jurisdiction over um, reviewing uh, acquisitions and major investments by foreign entities of US companies for national security uh, review uh, and implications there. Um, in this particular case, uh, so uh, ByteDance, the parent of company that owns TikTok, um, made an acquisition of the lip syncing site uh, Musical.ly, um, and that was back in 2017. Um, they did not file a application for CFIUS review First, Pompeo said, and then and then Trump's followed on with the with potential ban of uh, TikTok in the United States. And since that's come out, people have been speculating: what are the legal grounds? What is the mechanism that 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 ban could be uh, implemented under? And I've been um, a proponent that it's likely to be CFIUS. Uh, and no, and as far as I know, no no CFIUS. The insidious investigation is not concluded, right? It's still ongoing, and no recommendation has been made to Trump yet. Yeah. So the the tricky thing here is, so as the um, as you mentioned, um, this was a transaction that was completed a few years ago, and then only really garnered attention starting kind of late 2019. Um, there was a lot of uh, attention paid to it in the immediate aftermath of the Rubio's comments and some other related comments. And then it was uh, sort of assumed that what it what had happened was Cepheus had approached ByteDance and said, um, "We believe that your investment or your acquisition of Musically slash TikTok 
um, falls within our jurisdiction uh, and we want to sort of now bring you in for a review, so to speak, because we have not we have not uh, previously reviewed this transaction. Uh, and, and so, you know, CFIUS is not a public process. It is a confidential process. And this is sort of a real sort of deviation from the norm in terms of a lot of this being discussed publicly. Mm -hmm. um, but but what, what I think everybody presumes happened is that, you know, that, that process took some time. They were likely um, sort of forced to file um, a notice with CFIUS to have the transaction and the circumstances of it all reviewed at some point uh, this year, earlier this year. Um, now, CFIUS reviews are typically on a very tight timeline. It's usually 90 days by statute that the committee has to review something and investigate it. And then there has to be a decision made. Um, and if, uh, and, and typically the decision is that you either kind of approve it or clear it uh, in the parlance of CFIUS. You uh, approve it or clear it with some conditions attached, which are usually referred to as mitigation mm -hmm. um, uh, conditions, or you recommend uh, to the president, because the president at the end of the day is the person who has the ultimate authority with respect to CFIUS, that a transaction be uh, blocked. Uh, and the presumption is that um, they had not been able to find an adequate remedy or path forward with ByteDance remaining as the owner. And so they have now in recent months been focused on whether or not there could be um, divestiture of TikTok in particular um, to a, uh, a friendly uh, buyer, if you will. And, and in this case, it seems that that's, that's going to be a U.S. buyer at the mm -hmm. end of the day. Um, so to your point, what, what could really be done or what could be in the in coming is from all the reporting we've seen, and, and you know, as, as many probably know, it's, it's widely kind of acknowledged that Microsoft is maybe the leading contender to um, potentially acquire uh, TikTok. Um, although in recent days, I've seen other large companies, Twitter was mm -hmm. mentioned as a possible suitor as well. Um, so it could be another U.S. company potentially. The, the, the trick here is that now that this is uh, within sort of the, the jurisdiction of CFIUS, um, CFIUS will have to approve whatever the ultimate kind of resolution is here, mm -hmm. uh, including any divestiture to a, to a U.S. party. And so there have been, you know, again, rumblings that Trump claims that the Treasury Department should get sort of a success fee or a finder's fee of some right. kind if a deal is done, and they, which, to be clear, is not something that is not something that is is part of the CFIUS process. So, um, you know, they could theoretically, I guess, demand whatever terms they want, but I would I would be skeptical that that's going to be part of the part of any deal. Um, but what has happened is that this was all put on the clock, and it was sort of put out there publicly that there was 45 more days to get a deal done or else. Now the or else is exactly what you're getting at is, well, so then what happens? Well, right. under, if, if the committee were to then say to the president, we, we recommend you prohibit, or if he were just to choose to do it uh, on his own, then essentially that would, that would order the whole um, deal unwound. Right. Um, and if there was no buyer, um, then I suppose that would mean that perhaps the entity would just have to shut down at least for some point for some period of time. Right. Now I have a hard time believing that, um, you know, an, 
an entity and an app that kind of has as much visibility and as much cachet as TikTok does at, at the moment will just be left to wither and die. Um, I do think at, at the end of this, there will be a, there will likely be a deal struck where there's, where there's a US um, purchaser of, of, of that entity or of that, those assets. But, um, you know, how you get there and, and because this is now essentially a, a distress sale. It's a, it's essentially like, it's, it's akin to sort of a bankruptcy sale. And we've seen mm -hmm. this with other, with other CFIUS cases in the past few years where the committee comes in and says, well, this can't stand. And, and you Chinese owner, Chinese buyer cannot um, continue to hold the stake that you hold, um, or we're going to shut this all down. We're going to force you to sell. Um, obviously that has repercussions economically in terms of how the market might perceive the value of that asset and, mm -hmm. and what type of a process is going to have to be run to, to make that happen or to get a, a sale done. Um, you know, what types of buyers are going to still be interested in that case? Um, now, again, given that Microsoft and Twitter are two of the entities that are rumored to be interested, I think that suggests that this is the sort of high end of the U.S. tech world that is that is interested here and 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 so i do think that there will likely be some um resolution that's probably worked out and then of course the executive order that was issued that we've spent the first portion of the pod talking about that's a bit of a that's a bit of a curveball that was mm -hmm. i don't think anybody really expected that but to me the executive order is kind of doubling down if you will on the administration's pledge to only give um bite dance 45 days to sell or else, because mm -hmm. it's now placed things. If, if there's no sale, then you're right that there could be a CFIUS related um, order issued by the president to order the unwinding. And then we also have the executive order that's in place that would would bar U.S. person or person subject to U.S. jurisdiction from transacting with ByteDance, which for the time being means um, TikTok would be covered. Um, and so I think I think in some ways that piece of it was sort of an an amping up of the pressure on ByteDance to get a sale done in the next 45 days. I, I kind of want to take a step back to, um, you know, because first we, we, I, I kind of jumped over the fact of the connection with Musical.ly. So Musical.ly, it was two TikToks. So Musical.ly was bought basically before, before ByteDance had much of a presence in the U.S. and it was kind of like a market entry play, if you will, almost to get into the U.S. market. Simultaneously, they spent a lot of money on YouTube advertising and other other uh, ways to get their their name out there and then at, at some point the, the app just had its own momentum but uh, musically was bought it was rebranded as TikTok um, shortly thereafter and so yeah unwinding this transaction unwinding the musically transaction would now essentially be unwinding TikTok's presence in the U.S. but for a but for a, a, a white knight buyer coming in I suppose but um, I want to go back to that say to that initial purchase by um, by ByteDance of musically um, and was it obvious at the time, and this was also for the benefit of the audience, this was before FIRMA, which was a, a, a revision of CFIUS, uh, which gave CFIUS a lot more authority. Was it obvious back then in 2017 that ByteDance should have made a filing for national security review under CFIUS? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. And I think the... Um, I think the short answer is not necessarily, uh, and and I'll and I'll explain why. So, in the pre-firma world, um, we're talking only about um, the only transactions that are going to fall under CFIUS's jurisdictions are ones that confer control to a foreign investor, right? So, mm -hmm. I think it probably would have met it, 
from everything I know, it would have it would have been uh, the control piece would have been met. But then the the sort of second piece is well, all we're talking about is some silly lip syncing app. How is that? How does that Im impact national security? And there may be plenty of people out there who still ask themselves that question. This is just a bunch of teenagers that are making videos uh, of themselves dancing and lip syncing and doing other goofy things while they're under quarantine. Why, how is that possibly a national security um, concern? I think the answer is that around the time that that was completed and I was, you know, I was still working with the committee in 2016 into 2017, especially once the new administration came in, there was really a shift uh, in terms of the risk tolerance with respect mm -hmm. to uh, data privacy and in particular personal data uh, of U.S. citizens and U.S. persons. And it, and it sort of coupled with that is the fear that with um, sort of big data mechanisms and algorithms and data mining capabilities that um, in particular the Chinese government has, that there is a, uh, a real, not even theoretical, but a real um, sort of concrete threat that all of that user data, all of the data and the little um, bits and pieces of insight that can be gained from these videos and from user info and geolocation data uh, and all types of other things uh, can help provide sort of, um, uh, you know, dossiers on U.S. persons that can make them vulnerable. And, you know, U.S. government employees, U.S. military personnel, um, other sensitive U.S. interests, maybe economic or, or otherwise, that, that may be vulnerable by sort of exposing all of this to those types of, um, to those types of filters, if you will, uh, is, is in fact a real legitimate national security consideration. And so, um, that, so I think around that time, 2016 into the 2017, any apps that had a Chinese buyer or presence sort of in the background where there was going to be, again, the access to massive amounts of data on U.S. users and, and, US, and habits of U.S. users, et cetera, that was really kind of elevated to a higher order concern with CFIUS. And so it may not have been widely known or understood or appreciated at that time. Uh, to get back to your fundamental question, um, I can tell you that I, I know that there were some um, very experienced lawyers around the table uh, advocating on behalf of their clients in front of CFIUS in 2017 that were essentially saying, well, under the old regime, this wouldn't have been a problem. Like we could, mm -hmm. we will agree to all kinds of mitigation and all kinds of uh, conditions that you want to place upon this to um, to make this palatable to CFIUS or to the U.S. government, but um, you can't be serious that you're going to tell us that this is, um, you're going to prohibit this or that you're going to tell us that we have to abandon this transaction. Mm -hmm. But that was, in fact, the message that was starting to be delivered more um, forcefully in 2017. And so I think that in all likelihood, ByteDance probably was just at the beginning of the cresting of this wave. Uh, and so there may not have been uh, as much concern or as much uh, sort of internal acknowledgement that that was a real risk, that CFIUS could come back at some point down the road and tap, you know, sort of tap them on their, on their shoulder and say, actually, we, we want to take a look at this transaction because we think your acquisition of Musical.ly does raise U.S. national security concerns. So I think it was really at that kind of crossroads period 
where this was just becoming much clearer. And I think now there's no doubt that it's pretty clear um, and it's it's much more well understood. But three years ago, I think it, it would not necessarily have been. So in the, those interim three years, um, obviously, ByteDance and TikTok have have taken notice of the fact that they are on people's radars now and 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 the environment has changed and what what sh should be uh, what should compel someone to make a CFIUS filing these days is, is, is a little clearer and clearly this is now more in the domain of, of, of a CFIUS filing. In those three years, you know, so TikTok, um, of course, um, has taken some measures and this, this question is really about mitigation efforts. So um, they have been adamant to this day that they do not take any directions from Beijing on um, Sort of data sharing or content or anything like that. There's the that's the date sort of the data privacy issue on the content side. It's really twofold. Um, you know, there's this concern about um, uh, moderate content moderation, which is a kind of a politer way of saying censorship mm -hmm. um, and and taking down sensitive content um, that the Chinese government would deem, in particular, would deem sensitive. And then we've got this issue of sort of fake news and, and content manipulation, um, you know, highlighted most clearly by the concern over the 2016 election and the use of fake Facebook by foreigners or foreign governments and the, the news around that um, for manipulating people and their presidential uh, candidate preferences and so forth. So um, my question is, um, with all of these issues and, and you know, TikTok brought on Kevin Mayer from Disney as, as a CEO, um, has said we host our data in the US, except there's a backup in Singapore. Um, we do not take any instructions from Beijing, et cetera. We don't, we have very good privacy policy now, maybe didn't before as much, but we do now. Can any Chinese company that handles a lot of personal data properly mitigate its risk to pass a CFIUS review at the kind of current stage of the bilateral relationship right now? Yeah, that's, again, that's a, that's a really critical question and, and one that I think, um, you know, from my own experience talking to um, folks both in China and the U.S. that are potentially in, involved with Chinese investors, um, that many people are very skeptical of that and, and are sort of taking, taking a pass or looking elsewhere to invest their money at the, at the moment because they, they, don't know that the answer to that is is yes. Here's what I would say to that. Um, it, it is you know there there are no categorical bans that are implemented via CFIUS uh, against China or anybody else. It is always a case by case. Uh, and so you know I was involved in a I was involved in a CFIUS review last year in the healthcare sector where there was a Chinese company that was acquiring a U.S. company and that got approved and that got approved mm -hmm. actually without any mitigation. Now that now the scope of that was a little more modest and and so there were some other reasons there that probably worked in our favor but it's not an it is not uh across the board outright um bar or ban that being said i think the difference that we see now as opposed to what we saw let's say four years ago if if something like this had come up under the prior administration um you know there was there was kind of always there is always a mantra and has been i think a, a kind of trust but verify type of mantra when it comes to some of these things which is okay we take all of the company's representations that's great but we're going to need to 
uh, we're going to need to impose a whole number of additional restrictions. We're going to have audit rights. We're going to have, you know, kind of vigorous oversight of all these things to ensure compliance, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that was deemed in many cases under sort of the old regime uh, to be satisfactory and to be adequate and to be um, perhaps a risk that was worth uh, taking in light of U.S. open investment policy and um, and the like. I think now it's just so it's just shifted very far in the other direction where there is no trust, frankly, at all. And so despite whatever the CEO of TikTok might say, despite whatever ByteDance might say, um, the U.S. has its reasons, um, again, agree with them or disagree with them, but they have their reasons for just being um, just disbelieving any of those representations. And so it's sort of, no matter what kind of framework we build around this to, to you know, try to mitigate whatever risk there is, there is just not the trust that the Chinese owner, Chinese investor, Chinese government is going to uh, honor that. And as a result, the only answer is essentially to order a divestiture, like in this case, or if it's if CFIUS is looking at a brand new transaction that raises some of these same concerns, it may very well be to say, well, we're telling you that we're going to recommend to the president that he prohibit this. And so you can either walk away quietly uh, and try to, you know, go another route or um, it, there's going to be a public prohibition, which is, you know, sort of a, a scarlet letter, so to speak, that most companies, whether in China or the U.S., don't really want. And so if they can avoid that, they usually do. They usually scuttle the deal on their own if it becomes clear that it's not going to get um, approved. So that, that really leads me into my last question, which is, you know, you've, you've, um, we've been talking so much about CFIUS and um, the increased role it's been taking on in this process and, and being one of the primary ways of uh, screening uh, foreign companies doing business in, in, in the U.S., particularly China, um, and for national security issues. And, you know, some commentators have said recently, especially that, you know, CFIUS is relatively ar arbitrary um, in the way it makes decisions. It's clearly influenced by political considerations, perhaps. But, of course, at the same time, national security decisions, I think, are always going to be political decisions. It's unavoidable and always going to have a certain amount of discretion that you're going to have to give the people that make those decisions. And then we have some other commentators who think that actually CFIUS, uh, although maybe slightly arbitrary, still is the right tool. And that's going to be my question for you in a bit. You know, these commentators might say that CFIUS does still strike the right balance as sort of like a measured response to national security issues. You could think of the alternative being just banning all Chinese technology companies that handle large amounts of personal data with a kind of a broad stroke or seek, you know, seeking to acquire kind of critical sensitive technology. And that CFIUS is actually a more measured approach. So where do you fall on this spectrum as far as CFIUS being the right tool to use for these kinds of national security risks? Yeah, I think so. To to address the sort of arbitrariness point first, I, you know, I think the statistics, at least as of a couple of years ago, were something akin to, you know, CFIUS was seeing in terms of the filings that were actually brought to it, some somewhere in the sort of single digits of 
transactions that were actually subject to its jurisdiction. So there is a, there has been historically, and, and I'm, that number may have inched up now, but it, but it, it is a low percentage of transactions that are uh, actually brought before the committee. And, and in part, that's because I, I'm certain there are parties that just make the judgment that, look, this isn't a national security risk. So even if technically they may have jurisdiction, we don't really need that safe harbor because it's not going to ruffle any feathers if we do this. But there are just countless transactions that are out there that never CFIUS never sees or learns about. So mm. the arbitrariness point, I think, comes from when you have something as high profile as TikTok that is in the crosshairs of CFIUS, it feels, it, it can feel like that's sort of arbitrary. And it's, uh, but I mean, I, I think that just goes with the territory of if you have a high profile business uh, that you're acquiring or investing in, the the idea that it is going to um, get scrutiny, whether from Congress or CFIUS or anybody else in the U.S. government, is just higher. So I think there is some of that. But and otherwise, uh, it is there. There has been a push in recent years to sort of increase the rigor and the regularity with which CFIUS is kind of scanning the investment landscape, if you will, to find that 90% of cases that they haven't been notified about mm -hmm. and to bring in the ones that are maybe the most concerning and raise the biggest issues. So there has been a lot of effort and a lot of resources expended to sort of um, to, to change that to some degree. But I, but I take the point that it does feel to some degree arbitrary. It, some of that I think also rests in exactly the, the second point that you're raising, which is, is this the right tool? It is again, a case by case, transaction by transaction tool. It is not a law passed by Congress. It is not a sweeping executive order that is going to, like you said, ban all Chinese companies from having any, um, you know, uh, interest in certain types of technologies or in certain types of infrastructure or in certain, you know, types of businesses that hold certain data. Um, it is a case by case at the end of the day. So it is more um, tailored in that way. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, and the, the other interesting thing, again, to sort of go to the Taylor point and the arbitrary point, CFIUS sort of regards their case history and their transaction history as not necessarily being precedential. Mm -hmm. and, and unlike the courts, right? So the courts are sort of bound by precedent to some degree in the United States or to a large degree. Um, and you can't just sort of deviate from that on a whim because there's a new, um, there's a new president or a new um, you know, administration in office. Uh, CFIUS is, as you said, at the end of the day, it is, it is policymakers that are judging where those risk tolerances are mm -hmm. and that are making um, decisions ultimately based on those risk tolerances. And so th this administration versus the last, th that is just in a fundamentally different place. And so there is a different approach and a different willingness to take on certain risks, especially with respect to China um, now. And, and that's to say that there is, there is just is not much stomach for it. There is just not much stomach for it. Um, and, and you have to have, um, I've had recent discussions on this score where, you know, I've advocated that companies that are thinking about bringing on Chinese investors, you know, you, you really have to have a rigorous process that you go through kind of on the front end to just understand all of the issues that could come up 
Mm -hmm. uh, you want to be able to address them. You want to be able to have answers for them. You might even want to be able to propose in the first instance before CFIUS ever looks at something, sort of how you would propose to mitigate things that you know are going to be issues. Mm -hmm. uh, what you're, what you're going to, you know, being very proactive about it as opposed to um, maybe in, in days past, you would sort of uh, put your best case forward and hope for the best and then sort of deal with whatever the committee came at you with. Um, I, I just think that that's not necessarily a winning solution now because um, there is, as you said, uh, just a very different um, sort of uh, tolerance for the types of risks that are being, um, that are, you know, that are of the highest magnitude importance for the government at this point. And if you're not coming with a very proactive approach and a thoughtful approach, and then I think you stand very little chance. If you do those things, then you're certainly improving your chances. There's, there's no guarantees in this game. Um, and like I said, at the end of the day, it's not a, it's not a categorical no to everything, but it is, it is, uh, an area that I think, um, you shouldn't sort of, uh, shouldn't dive in too lightly. You need to know what you're getting yourself into if you're gonna if you're gonna go down this road with Cepheus. It's part of it's part of it is the sure like you said, administrations having different risk tolerances, but also technology is not a stagnant thing, right? So technologies yes. are, are evolving and how that in the national security implications of that evolve with it. And it's a bit of a moving target in that sense. So the the fact that Cepheus is has discretion is uh, is a necessity. Um, yeah, and, and to and to that point as well, I think that's a great point. Is that obviously the speed of innovation that you see in the private sector, all around the world, is is in almost every case going to be outstripping that of of the government's uh, both own development of that type of technology and its understanding of it and its implications of it. Mm -hmm. So there's oftentimes a, you know, somebody has charged out ahead and it wants to do things in a certain way and, and um, is doing things in a certain way. And then a year or two later, our government in the United States or some other government, uh, China or elsewhere will kind of understand and appreciate what's really happening and what the, what the upsides and the downsides are, are of that. And, and then they'll, they'll need to kind of, catch up and reckon with that. So that's also part of the tension here is that the, the, the pace of innovation is, is often just well ahead of the pace of regulation. Well, so for our audience's a reminder, again, if you want to stay completely up on, on all of these kinds of issues, check out Embargoed, a podcast uh, uh, that Brian is the co-host of. Um, you are a busy man these days, I'm sure, Brian, so we're lucky to have you um, for the time that we can. Uh, I just want to thank you a lot for being a guest and, uh, and it's a really interesting conversation for our audience. Thanks, Art. I really appreciated it. And um, I look forward to bringing you on to Embargoed as a guest of ours at some point in the future. So thank you very much. Sounds great. Thanks, Brian.